For our scripture reading this afternoon, we'll turn again to 1 Peter in chapter 2. We'll continue in our study of the book of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll read the first 10 verses. First Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This far, the reading of God's Word. And our focus for this afternoon will be mainly on the verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8, and especially the words of verse 5, where it says, You also... As living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So in our culture, where we see how they're doing everything, it seems, in their power to oppose God's church and God himself, we know that God is building up his church. It is in this world that God has come to build his church, to save his people. And Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's because the church of God rests on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ that can never be shaken. And that's our comfort and that's our encouragement no matter what we face in this life and in this world. And the church of God we know will continue to grow because it's God who is building it. Last week we considered or last time we considered the first three verses of this chapter where we saw how Peter was talking about growing up as Christians, growing individually, that personal spiritual growth that comes through the desire of the Word of God, through that sincere milk of the Word, he calls it. And there we see that, that, that spiritual growth as we grow, it causes us to lay aside those old garments of sin that like, like a child outgrows clothing, we outgrow these sins that, that we were born and raised in. 
But Peter does not only focus here on personal growth or on individual growth, but there's something much bigger. He says in verse 5, you are being built up a spiritual house. That means every Christian is part of something larger, something much bigger, part of a much larger construction project. And so that's what we want to consider here this afternoon. You are being built up, and that's where our theme comes from, built up Christians. And maybe the first question you have is, what are you being built up into? What are you built up to become? Well, first of all, we can see where it says, you are being built up. It implies that it's not you doing the building. It's God who's doing the building. You are being built, built into something else. And as we said in the first verses, we saw what it meant to grow individually as Christians, desiring that Word of God and we, we know that if there is no hunger, if there is no desire, no seeking after God, there's also no spiritual growth. But with Christians, there is a hunger, there's a desire, there's a seeking, there's a feeding on the Word of God and on Christ Himself. And so you can ask, what is it that we are to grow into? And here, Peter, he, he switches then from the imagery of, of a newborn baby to construction, to the construction of, of a building. And so he gives us here three illustrations to, to help us get a picture in our mind of what we're being built up to become. And in verse 5 he says there first, you also as living stones. So first he compares you to living stones. And then we can think of like a rock quarry. If you've ever been there, children, you can see how the, how, the, how the machines, they dig out the rocks and you haul them out with trucks. And you can think of that of yourself, that God has dug us out of the stone quarry. He has, he has taken us out of the pit of sin and misery. He has made us alive in Jesus Christ. And He has made us into living stones. Stones then are used for building. They're shaped, they're formed, and used to, to build something. Children, you also like to use Lego, Lego blocks. And one block at a time, you, you build up these walls and you, you build a little building. And Christians are like that as well. They're, they're blocks that are being used to build a building. But God calls them living stones. But we need to realize that each, of, each Christian is, is one block, one person who God is using. And so what is God building? Well, we see then, he says, you are being built up a spiritual house. You're being built into a spiritual house. And so God uses this metaphor to describe the household of God, the church. In the Old Testament, you know that there was the temple. The temple was considered the house of God. That's where the people met God. That's where the, the priests would work. That's where God would come and show His glory. And Solomon also had the privilege of building that big temple. He had the rocks dug out of the mountains and, and shaped and hauled in and, and built into this grand uh, temple in Jerusalem. But in Ephesians 2 verse 19 it says, You are members of the household of God. The whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
So that means that Christians are not just individual and scattered stones in this world. If you think of who Peter is writing to, he's writing to the persecuted Christians who are scattered throughout Asia. But he's showing them that they belong to the construction project of God. And so Christians do not only grow personally and individually, that is also important, but we're also especially growing corporately in, in being built up in the church, and that's different. We need the church because no stone is able to make a building by itself. A wall is, every wall is made up of many stones, many pieces, but every stone in that, in that wall needs the other ones to support it. So you can think of a wall. There's, there's the strong stones at the bottom. There's the, the, the seasoned Christians underneath, and there's ones who's built on top of them generation after generation. There's one, there, if you picture yourself as that stone in the wall, where do you fit in? Where do you fit in? There, and there's, you're built on other Christians, and there's Christians beside you who hold you together, who hold the wall along with you. But then as you grow up, there's also other stones being placed on top of you. People who come after, who are built on your work and service and, and worship. And so we all hold each other up. We rely on one another. And that's how God builds the wall together. But in, if you think of that in, in light of Hebrew 10, verse 24, where he says, Do not neglect, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He says, because the purpose there is to build each other up to serve each other, to encourage each other, to stir one another up to love and to good works. And so there's a purpose for every brick in the wall. Paul also, in Ephesians 2, he calls this building the dwelling place of God the Spirit. And if you, if you look in the Old Testament, the, the, the special element of the temple and of the covenant relationship that God had with His people was the presence of God. He promised His presence in the midst of His people. And that was demonstrated by the tabernacle, by the, by the temple. And so, this indicates that God not only indwells His believers, believers are also mentioned to be uh, the temple of, of the Holy Spirit, but, but corporately, the, the Holy Spirit is presence in the assembly of His people. Matthew 18 says that where believers are gathered, that the Holy Spirit not only indwells the people, but He is said to be in the midst of them. He's in that gathering. And that means the Holy Spirit is present here and wherever God's people are gathered together in a very special way. In a way that He is not present with us when we are going about our daily lives during the week. There's a difference in the, the, the gathering of God's people in the, in the church. And that's what we can also read of in, in Revelation where 7 and, verse, and, and chapter 21, where it speaks especially of when, that, when that, that church of God and the temple of God is revealed. What is so special about it? It is that God dwells with His people. He says specifically, God is in their midst. God, His, His presence is there. And so there's one quote that I wrote down here. It says, So we should know that our, high, our, our highest and most significant place is the station which we possess in the church, 
the body and the bride of Christ. Now, think of how this would have uh, encouraged and impacted the Christians who were scattered all over Asia because of persecution. They probably felt like they had no place in this world, and they wondered what their place was with God. But here Peter is saying your most important place on earth is where God has, uses you and places you in His kingdom. And temporarily on this earth, it is in His visible church. Because this is where God meets you. This is where God uses you. This is where God delights to dwell as a foretaste of eternity. And they needed to hear this. And you and I need to hear this today. Because we are not scattered by persecution yet. The, di- the day may come for that. But we are scattered. In, in a large part, we as Christians are scattered. Scattered by prosperity. Scattered by individualism or humanism. And we can, we can see that because... We, we can drift in so many different directions. We have so many ways we can feed ourselves, so to speak. There's, there's a lot of online content. There's a lot of good books we can read, and that's all important. But it, it also has a danger that we, we scatter from one another instead of because we think we can survive on our own. You hear it more and more today that the, the people who call themselves Christians say, I don't need the church because there's too many problems in the church. I can, I'm, I'm better off by myself. I'll just read my Bible. I'll just study here. But God has a purpose for His church. And so we need to hear this because God dwells with us also here today. And here is where God is building us up. And God is using you to build others up. And you fit into that wall somewhere, like a Lego block. And if you think without that one block, there is a hole. And where there's a hole, there's a weakness, there's an emptiness. There is something there that is missing. It's not supporting the other blocks. And you yourself might feel stable where you are. But the wall is not being helped by you at all. And if you think of that, especially generationally, what is God's purpose for us for the next generation or the generation that we are in ourselves? How do we support one another? How do we support the upcoming generation? If they're, who, who will support them? Who will they lean on? And so he is building us up a spiritual house, but he also goes on and says a holy priesthood. So these are all different illustrations to help us understand what Christians are to be. You're part of the temple, you're part of the spiritual house, but you're not only a living stone, but you're also compared to priests inside that temple, priests that work in the house. And so he calls them holy priests. That means, holy means set apart, set apart by God and for God, dedicated to God, which means you are dedicated to God, means separated from the world. And that's also what our, what our baptism symbolizes, baptized into God's name. And this is also why it's important for believers to join themselves to a visible church, to show that they are separated from the world and separated to God to be a priest and to serve God in the household of God. 
God has a purpose for each one of us to serve one another and Him. But it brings us to our second main point. You can ask the question, or you might be asking a question, what is the purpose of being built up into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood? Well, then we can think back and ask, what's the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? Or what was the purpose and the duty of the priests in the Old Testament? We can summarize it all probably with one word, worship. It was all designed to worship God, to serve God in the way that He commanded, and to make His name known among the nations. And so in verse 5, He says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is our purpose of being built up? And the first word we can think of is sacrifice. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The temple was a place of sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin, sacrifice for thanksgiving, and and various other things, and the priests offer them. But in the New Testament, we no longer offer sacrifices for sin because Christ has come as a fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews says Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. But in the New Testament, Hebrews 13 says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise unto God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So there is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of praise to God. And this is really done in, in a life of, of obedience. And Peter will go on in these chapters of, of explaining how we are to live a life of, as Christians, how, how that works out practically for us in various ways. But when you think of sacrifice, you can also, you also, it makes you think of cost. Because sacrifices always cost them something. When the Israelites had to sacrifice, they had to take one of their best animals and they could not take it back home with them. You, you sacrificed them. It cost you your animals or your money. And so you give to the Lord. But along with sacrifice, we can again think of holiness. You remember a while ago how we looked at the requirements of the priest, how they were called to be holy, to be separate from anything that would make them unclean. And then we saw here in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 16 where it says, Be holy, for I am holy. How God calls us to holiness, to be separated from anything that would defile us or make us unclean. And so holiness in itself will cost us something. It's a sacrifice of anything and everything in this world that is not according to God's will. Anything that interferes with worshiping God in in spirit and in truth, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it must be sacrificed, done away with. And we can think of what that really means, even just for the Sabbath alone, for the Sunday rest. What what interferes with our wholehearted worship of God that He requires? 
What in our life prevents, pre- prevents us from devoting our, our life to God? And so there's sacrifice, and there's holiness, and then there's service, because the priests worked in the service of God. The whole life of the priest was dedicated to serve the Lord. And Paul tells us what that means for the Christian in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he goes on to explain what that means. He says that that means not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind to, to do what is acceptable to God, to know how to live, to put, away off, to put off the old man, to put off the, the old ways of, of sin. It's like Peter said here in verse 1, laying aside those old garments of sin. That's what happens when, when you grow as Christians. But it will cost us as well. The service of God will cost us our sins. It will cost us our, our worldly lusts and the worldly pleasures that contradict His Word. And we must put off those sins. Paul even calls that mortifying, putting to death your sin. And that is never easy, nor is it pleasant. But that costs us. But again, if we think of the stone, the stone does not fit in the wall if it's misshaped. Solomon wouldn't have had those stones hauled in if they weren't fitted properly for the temple. And God will shape every one of His people to perfection for that day when they will be presented in glory. But then there's also witness. We're called to be witnesses in this world. The priests in the Old Testament and the temple itself was known as the showplace, the display of, of God for the world to see. That through the worship of the temple, it, it, it revealed God to the world. It taught the children of Israel and the nations about God in contrast really to the idols around them. But now in the New Testament, Christians have been taught to go out into the world. To, to proclaim the gospel, to be living witnesses in the world around us. And for the Christians in the early church, it was a persecution that really served to, to drive them out into the different nations and to, to make them witnesses where the gospel had not yet come. And here we can ask this question, could it be that God is telling us that we need to think about this now while we still have relative freedom in our own country, when we still have the opportunity to speak more openly, whereas there's many places in this world where that's not possible anymore. And we see how this restriction is coming in in our our own country, where if you speak of it in the schools or in different places like this, you will be opposed strongly. But this also, the witnessing will also cost us our time. This also is a sacrifice. It costs us our comfort. It might cost us our reputation or even our friends. But again, we need that holiness and that love to be a faithful witness in this world. But we also need to ask, what does the world really see from our witness? 
What does the world hear from us? What kind of a witness are we? But then there's also prayer. You can ask, what else did the priests do in the Old Testament? And they had the job of prayer and intercession. We are called to be much in prayer. The Bible says men must ought always to pray. Men, especially in the church, are called to prayer. James 5 says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That supplicating, that interceding prayer is sufficient for all our needs. It says Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and the rain came. But prayer is also a sacrifice. Prayer is not easy. It will cost us much. It's one of the most difficult things to do if you really set yourself to it. Because the enemy hates prayer. And he'll do everything to distract you or to stop you from prayer. Whether it's something simple like your phone ringing or, or children disrupting you, or if it's you being put in jail for praying at an abortion clinic, as we've seen recently, with people praying in, within the bubble zones. In whatever way possible, prayer is costly. It costs us our time, our pleasures. There's a lot of things we'd rather do than pray. There's a lot of things that we think are more productive than prayer because we want to see progress. We like to see the result of our work, but with prayer we often don't see much. And so it's humbling. It it costs us our pride and our self-righteousness. But it's here that we can ultimately confess that it's God and God alone who builds His church. And that it's God alone who can deliver us from the powers of evil. Especially what we see coming in our country now. That it's God alone who can deliver His people from it. And so we must be much in prayer. Because we see our nations really plummeting into chaos and into lawlessness and, and, and persecution and confusion. We see sin abounding. We see the various laws they're making and decisions they're making that we know will result in, in, in much crime or lawlessness. And how are we praying against it? Or are we praying against it? Because we all know how it feels that as long as we're comfortable in our own little life, in our own little bubble, and it doesn't affect us directly, we are not driven to prayer. But prayer will cost us a little comfort. It will cost us a little time. But really there's no other weapon that we have as prayer that we need for the, for the furthering of God's work, for the furthering of His, of His church, but especially also for the, the comfort of our children and for the future. So we need to think about what do we need to pray for now? And we can ask ourselves, even today or this week, has prayer really cost us anything this week? Have, have we taken the time to pray for some of these things? Because the Lord Jesus said in, in Luke 14 that whoever does not take up his cross and deny himself and forsake all he has, he cannot be my disciple. That applies here as well to prayer. And so again, back to the question of the second point, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of our life? Is it the worship of God? Is it the service of God? 
is God building us up that, that spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to Him? Is that what our, our lives are becoming, a life of spiritual sacrifices to God? And I think all of us can agree when we come to this point and we hear this, we have to confess our shortcomings, don't we? Confess how little we serve the Lord, how little we sacrifice for the Lord. And that's why it's important to know here thirdly what it is that God is building you up on. What are, what are we being built up on? It's like every house needs a good foundation. Peter here also shows the foundation on which believers are being built. And first he says in the end of verse 5, a holy, or to, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The, the purpose of God's saving work in Christ is to make His people, to build up His people for this purpose, to offer a spiritual sacrifices. And our sacrifices can only be accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Because every sinner here has begun as a dead stone in the quarry of sin in this world. Every sinner was dead but made alive in Christ and Peter calls them now living stones, but they're founded, they're founded on the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, he calls him in verse 4, coming to him as a living stone. And in verse 6, Peter is quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. And there he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. That's what Isaiah said. Isaiah is saying this is a tested stone, one that has stood all the durability and the strength tests. Christ endured the temptations on this world. Christ endured the trials on this earth, all without sin. He walked in perfect holiness on this world. He offered His life, not only as a sacrifice acceptable to God and in perfect obedience to God and to the will of God, but He also offered His life as a sacrifice for a payment for every stone in this building of God. He is the one who paid for the building of this temple. And He endured not only the opposition of all the forces of evil on this earth, but He also endured the wrath of God against our sin to deliver us from it. And so He's saying Christ is the tried and the true and the proven cornerstone. And that's why He says right after that, He is precious. He is the precious cornerstone, meaning that he's, that, that word precious means that it has a high value. It, it's highly esteemed. It is respected. It is honored. And Christ is of infinite value, having laid down his life for his church, shedding his own blood for his church. And he is that, that firm and sure foundation, he says. That means it's immovable because the eternal Son of God has secured the salvation of His people through this one sacrifice. He is the foundation cornerstone that God laid in verse 6, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, of whom the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. 
And so not only is He the precious cornerstone, but He is the chosen or the elect cornerstone. In verse 4, He calls Him chosen by God and precious. In verse 6, He repeats, He says, elect and precious. And earlier in chapter 1 and verse 20, Peter says He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And in Revelation, again, this comes up in Revelation 13. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was inspected. He was tested. He was tried. He was true. He was destined by God, chosen by God, to be this immovable cornerstone. He is the one that faced all the opposition and all the wrath of God, and He did not move. He is firm. He is sure. And this is where God is building His church. And we can know that this stone will never move, no matter how great of opposition comes against it. No matter what opposition comes up against the church in this world, this foundation stone will never move, and therefore His church will never fall. And that brings us, fourthly, to the security of being built up on Christ. The security of being built up on this cornerstone. Because this is the eternal security of your church. And this is who you are being built up on, on the everlasting and finished work of Christ. And this spiritual house will never crumble. The Lord Jesus told that story of, of the wise man who built on the rock and the foolish man who built on the sand, and that storm came and blew down that house. But here, no storm, no wind, no, no rain, nothing, no flood can push over this house. And that's why in verse 7 he says, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. Christ the cornerstone is precious to you. And that word again, precious, it means of such high value. It means respect. It means honor to you who honor Christ. He is precious. He is of infinite value. The stability of the wall of His church is, is on this footing. And if Christ is precious to you, what more can we do and what more we need we do as living stones but to rest on the foundation. Think again of the stones in the wall. What do they do? They rest on the foundation. And this is what God calls us to do as well, to rest on this foundation stone by faith, to rest in Christ alone as our only hope of salvation. He is our highly esteemed one because our hope of salvation rests in Him alone. He is our rock. He is our salvation. He is our Redeemer. He has delivered us from all our sins, delivered us from the quarry of sin and misery. He is the one who laid down His life for us and in our place. He is the one who brought us into the Father's house. He is the one who builds us up in Him through the Holy Spirit. And then if Christ is precious to you, you can know that you are precious to God because Christ is precious in the sight of God. God sees all His people in Christ, in this cornerstone. He is building you up on Christ. 
He is adorning His temple with living stones built on this precious cornerstone. Not because we are worthy. Not because we are a better stone than the next stone. Not because we made a decision. Not because we are somehow a better type of stone. But because of Christ. Because of the preciousness of Christ alone. And verse 6 says, Therefore, or the last part of verse 6, And he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Put to shame their means, dishonored, despised, or lose respect. It's really set in contrast to precious. To put to shame is really the opposite of precious. But if your faith and hope are in Christ, if Christ is precious and honored and respected by you, you will never be dishonored or lack respect by God. If you, in Christ, you are precious in the sight of God, and you will never be put to shame. And that's why we can read also in Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. That God places such a high value on His people because of the infinite value that is in Christ, the cornerstone. And those who die in the Lord die as precious in the eyes of the Lord. And He's building you up in Christ to worship His name forever, to be part of this temple, this tabernacle, this dwelling place of God, to be the worshipers of God. And that leads us lastly to the the last point. How are you built up? Because that can be a question sometimes. How are we to be built up by God? Well, verse 7 and 8, Peter really contrasts the attitude of believers and unbelievers. This cornerstone, he says, even in verse 4, is rejected indeed by men. To those who rejected him, Jesus said in John 5, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Verse 8, he says, or verse 7, he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Here you can imagine these these, these Pharisees, these rulers, these, these Jews, they come and, and like, like a construction supervisor. He comes and he inspects the stone. He, and he looks it all around and he, and he says, no, this, this, this stone won't do. And they, they reject the stone. It says it, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. What does that mean? Well, the stone of stumbling is a stone that you trip on. It's a stone that causes you to trip. Like if you're walking along a path and there's a stone sticking up and you, you, you trip on it, it causes you to fall. Christ was that stone that the Jews tripped over. They, they, they saw Him. They rejected Him. They, they, he, he proclaimed Himself in the word that they had proclaimed Him to be the chosen stone of God, but it made them fall in unbelief. They tripped right over Him. He's a rock of offense is another analogy that Peter gives. This is of, the ba- of, a, of a, like a baited trap. You can think of a deadfall where there's a big rock with a stick under it, and if someone grabs the bait, it pulls a stick and the, the rock falls on him. And, and so the Lord Jesus says in Luke 20, that he is the stone that is rejected by them. And on whoever the stone falls, it will grind you to powder. That those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be crushed by him. 
The Jews tried to push this stone out of the way and, and say, He's not the Christ. He's not the way of salvation. He's not the Son of God. And they crucified Him. But God says He made Him the chief cornerstone. But He says, All those who stumble in unbelief over Christ, not seeing Him as the only way of salvation in this world, they will stumble to their own destruction. And Peter here in his contrast, he, he began at chapter 1 by calling the believers elect in verse 1. And here in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, you are chosen generation. They're the chosen of God, the elect of God, even as Christ was the chosen of God, the chief cornerstone. But in contrast, it, Peter says that the unbelief of those who reject Christ revealed that they were appointed to this destiny, appointed also from eternity. They heard the Word of God, but they rejected Christ, and they would not come to Him as the only way, the truth, and the life. They would not come to this living stone for living water. And so they will stumble to their own destruction. But here we are again reminded that it is God who builds His church. It's not the result of a stone's decision, even though we're responsible for our own actions as people. It's not because one person is better than another that God has chosen us. But God is the one building up His spiritual house. He is the one who makes living stones out of dead stones. And Peter, in verse 4, he says, coming to Him as to a living stone. And in verse 7, he says, therefore to you who believe He is precious. Therefore to you who believe He is precious. And this is where we can examine ourselves. Do we have that hunger and thirsting in our heart, that desire for the pure milk of the Word as newborn babes, as he said in verse 1? Or here, do we believe on Him that He is precious? Is Christ our only way of salvation? Is there that living and a continual need, desire, and faith in Christ? Because verse 6 says, he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. That all those who trust in Him, no matter what you face in this world, whether we will be scattered by persecution or not, like Peter's audience was, this foundation stone will never be moved. And if this is where your hope lies, you will never be moved. God is building His church. If you rest on this Christ, as your rock of your salvation, you will never be put to shame. Here is where you can confess our help is in the name of the Lord, the one who is building His church. He is the one who places you on that rock, and it's in Him alone that we can find this security and this salvation and this eternal security. Shall we do not place all our hope and expectation in Him. 
His word is firm. His word is sure. And how many people have had to hold on just to those simple promises that whoever believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Even Paul uses these words in Romans 10. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So then hold on to this. Here is your life. Here is your salvation. Here is where God builds up his church. Here is where he places his living stones, where you one day also will be in his presence forever, to be eternally in his temple, in, his, in, in heaven with him forever. Amen.